sorry, chapter 12. The letter to the Hebrews is focused on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It, it focuses on him as Lord, Savior, High Priest, Mediator. The aim of the letter is to urge all Christians, especially those at that time who were Jewish Christians, and at our time, those who were raised in religious systems that emphasized their own works of righteousness to abandon those things and to trust in Jesus alone. We spent a number of weeks in Hebrews 11. We looked at men and women of history who trusted in Yahweh, who believed in him before Jesus was ever born. And as we move into chapter 12, what we see is that the author of Hebrews is not content to leave faith in the pages of Scripture. He brings it into our lives. He's now going to talk about us. What about us? How will we live in light of the greatness of our God? How will we live in light of those who have gone before? The people that were mentioned in Hebrews 11, as we looked at them, we saw that they're just like us. Some of them experienced significant triumphs and victories. Others experienced, all of them experienced some amount of suffering and distress, some to extremes. It's one thing to be moved by those examples and to find some kind of of, uh, emotional or moral encouragement in what others have done. It's another thing entirely to live in faith ourselves when we are afflicted and weary. And so the writer returns again, remaining with the issue of faith, especially faith in the middle of the pressures and the miseries and the temptations of life. The Lord's given us four encouragements in the passage that we have before us this morning. We're going to look at that. Because of the length of it, I'll read the text as we go. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word for spiritual nourishment. We come to be taught, to be reproved, to be corrected, to be trained in righteousness. We come to hear you speak to us. So open our ears, open our eyes, strengthen us to embrace and and believe what you have said. And it's for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we ask these things. And in his name, name we pray, amen. There's four encouragements. The first encouragement is... God's command to endure. The first two verses say, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him has endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The first encouragement that we have to endure is that God commands us to endure. Now, how is that encouraging? Well, it's encouraging because it's not a suggestion that Paul makes. It's not a wish that Peter has. It's a command from the Lord of glory. Jesus says in Matthew 28 that, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He is the Lord of everything. He is your Lord, and he has given you this command. And I want you to think about what the Lord says in Isaiah. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow do not co- or come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We speak to communicate God speaks to act. So when he gives you a command, the full weight of his authority and his power are behind it. As you trust in him, as you act in faith and obedience in what he has commanded, he brings it to pass. It's not your energy. It's not your power. It's not your strength. It's his Here's a little test, I guess. If your confidence resides in yourself, then you'll think that this adds pressure to your life. The fact that you've been commanded to endure. If your confidence is in yourself, if your expectation is that you should be able to do this on your own, what you're going to think is, that's too much to bear. But if your confidence is in Christ, in his word, in his authority, in his purposes, then when he says to you, you endure and I will work, that relieves the pressure. That gives you hope. What he commands his people to do, he enables his people to do. And he brings to pass. There are three things that we're told here that we must do. If we are going to live in faith, we must lay aside every weight, every encumbrance, everything that hinders us. These are often things that seem to be neutral. They're the things that get in the way of us remaining strong in faith. They're the things that distract us. They're the things that get us focused on earthly matters rather than heavenly matters on temporary things instead of eternal things. These things change from Christian to Christian, and they can change from day to day. There is a new Christian news feed that I've been tracking the last few days, and I'm about ready to give it up because it's every bit of negative, sad, sorry, pathetic news I see everywhere else. I don't need more of that. I see what's happening in in Portland with... Antifa, as they confront people, I see what's happening in our own political scene. I see what's happening financially, and I can get hindered very quickly. And so I'm to lay those things down. Not everything that you see. You don't ignore everything that you see. Don't put your head in a hole like an ostrich and go on with life the best that you can. But when those things begin to weigh you down and they pull your eyes from the Lord, you need to lay them down. The second thing he says is we must lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. This, this isn't a particular sin that's named. It's a sin that trips you up. It's a sin that happens to grab a hold of you. It's not something that you might stumble in once in a great while. It's something that has a hold that sometimes you don't even realize is there. And that sin becomes the focus of your life we need to lay those things aside we need to repent of them we need to confess them 
sometimes when I'm hearing people preaching the Word of God, they'll, they'll, they'll point to something or they'll make mention of something that really bugs me. It just really irks me that they would go there. That's, that's actually a good sign that maybe that's an entangling sin. That my first instinct is to protect it instead of to confess it. And finally, we must keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our example. Jesus remained faithful even when he was faced with intense hostility from sinners. He endured for us. He didn't just endure in order to be our Savior. He endured so that we would be able to endure. And he's able to guide us through the maze of this world, refresh us when we are weary, and keep us from losing heart. So we have God's command to endure. That's encouraging. The second encouragement is the divine origin of true faith. Biblical faith, saving faith, is not what we drum up within ourselves to the best of our ability. That's why it's, it's not a matter of, do you believe something? It's important that everybody believes something, and as long as you believe something, you're okay. Biblical faith is rooted and anchored in the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, sent by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The author and perfecter of that faith is Jesus himself. Those words mean that he is the architect and the builder. That he is the designer and the constructor. That he is the alpha and the omega of that faith. He is the beginning of that faith and he is the completer of that faith. He has done that for you. When you're faced with a confusing impossible circumstance it's not a cheat it is not resignation it is not giving up to say but what does the lord say what does the lord call us to do in this circumstance what does jesus call me to do through his word that that question is the way of wisdom he knows that i don't have every answer he doesn't expect me to have every answer he doesn't expect you to have every answer he expects you to come to him for wisdom the call to endurance is not a call to keep doing what you've been doing what you've determined to do but to remain in what jesus has designed and built for you you don't maintain your own faith you just endure in the faith he's given you the third encouragement is the loving discipline of God the Father. Verses 4 through 11. He says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined for us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. <clears throat> Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This third encouragement is the loving discipline of God the Father. God is the best Father there is. There's never been a better Father. He is the model for every Father on earth. He is the example of what we ought to be and do and never are or do. Now, the word that's translated discipline here uh, is, is equivalent to our word child-rearing. It doesn't mean punishment. It doesn't mean beating. It doesn't mean imposing some kind of force. It means child-rearing. What does that mean? That means God the Father is raising us up. He's raising us up, and he raises us well. He instructs us, he corrects us, he teaches us through his word and through conviction of sin. And he uses various circumstances, including suffering and hardship, to grow us up. He has some specific goals for this discipline. The first of which is that we would resist sin. Verse 4, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin. We are not done growing up. We know that Jesus never sinned, and yet Luke 2 says that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never disobeyed, but Jesus had to learn obedience. Hebrews 5.8 said that Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. God disciplines us so that we resist sin. God disciplines us as well to confirm that we are his children. Verses 5 to 8. What son is there in verse 7? Is What son is there whom his father does not discipline? God is the creator of everything and everyone in the universe, but he's only the spiritual father of those who are adopted to him through Christ. And he doesn't discipline those who are not his children. If he disciplines you, you're his. That's the evidence that you're his. That's the proof that he his, that, that that you're his. What does discipline mean in this in this circumstance? It, it means the issues that he brings into your life to remind you that he is there, that remind you of his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness, the things that he brings that that drive you back to him. When life is easy, we're inclined to forget that he's there. And until we grow up, until we've actually reached a, a genuine spiritual maturity, we will forget that he's there and that we need him, even when things are good. And so he brings issues into our lives which remind us of him and his word and our relationship with him to remind us that we belong to him, to remind us that he loves us. The Father also disciplines us so that we remember that he is our Father and remember too that he is our God, verses 9 and 10. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Shall we much not rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Earthly parents are always imperfect. We are never perfect. We are never right all the time. 
Most of us grew up with some sort of respect for our parents. That's part of what growing up is. There's an interesting that happens with some children, not all children, I think, but with some. And that, that's that moment where they turn to mom or dad and they, they don't call mom or dad mom or dad. They, they use your given name. It's not mom, it's Linda. It's not dad, it's Greg. What do we do in those moments? We say, oh, no, 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 no. You don't call me that. I'm not Greg to you. I'm dad to you. And see, that does two things. That says, first of all, there's an authority here. I have authority in your life. And you're not permitted to forget that. But there's something else. See, there, there's more than 7 billion people on the earth who are alive right now. And I'm Greg to all of them. I'm only dad to three. So when we're reminded that God is our father and our God, we're reminded not only of his authority, but of our intimacy with him. And there is something special that happens when the phone rings and the voice on the other end says, hi, dad. There's just about nothing that you wouldn't do for that person. Unless your mom, then they might, you might get a little mad at that. The Lord reminds us that he is our father and that he is our God, and he uses discipline to do that. And then the father disciplines us for the sake of righteousness. Verse 11, he uh, disciplined for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God is raising us to be his children, and that means he's raising us to be like him, and that means he's raising us to be righteous. I want to emphasize here, it's not his discipline that makes you righteous. You're made righteous by the work of the Holy Spirit. You are declared righteous, justified, according to the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to you. He's not purifying you through discipline. He's training you through discipline. He's training you so that you begin to make the decisions and you increase and, and learn how to, how to much more make the decisions that he would make that you've already received credit for. It's his love in action. The fourth encouragement that we have is the mutual support that we find in the church. The, Jesus has designed his church to be mutually supportive. It's interesting as you read the New Testament, as you read Paul's letters, is how often he uses the phrase, one another, and how he uses that phrase. Support one another, strengthen one another, build up one another, serve one another, bear with one another, tolerate one another, love one another. The religious world loves to create hierarchies. The church was still in its infancy when people within the church began creating hierarchies. The biblical picture of pastors and elders is that pastor, elder, bishop are all the same group of men. But before 100 AD, the church had already begun to separate out overseers, bishops, and say, oh, they're a special 
level. And then eventually you get to archbishops and then eventually you get to popes and you, you get to this, the, the, these multiple layers of hierarchy within the church. God has no grandchildren. We, are, we all stand on the same ground before him. We all come to him in exactly the same way. Not one person in the church has ever had more authority than another person. There are offices, there are ministries, but those are designed to be acts of service. And there are people who believe that being involved in a local church is optional. You can believe in Jesus without being involved in a church, and, and technically that's true, but the, the Lord doesn't leave it as an option. When you were converted, when you were born again, he, he baptized you into his body, and his body on earth has a visible representation. It's his people. And of course, we know that people in our time, Christians in our time, are much worse than Christians in the New Testament used to be. Christians in the New Testament were all just wonderful, glorious, kind-hearted, serving, gentle people. They were always righteous. They are always good. Read the epistles. Read what these people were. The reason that we have in Ephesians and Colossians, forgive one another, tolerate one another, bear with one another, bear one another's burdens, put up with one another, stop lying to each other, be gentle with one another, be kind to one another, serve one another, love one another, is they weren't doing it. We're just as messed up as they were. And I'll tell you this, According to scripture, there is nobody on the face of the earth except other Christians who can strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ. The world can't do it. Godless people can't do it. The wicked can't do it. It's only other Christians who can do it. The Holy Spirit do for you? Absolutely. He will serve you. He will guide you. He will strengthen you. And the vast majority of time, he will do that by bringing you into relationship with other Christians. Will he teach you what you need to know? Yes, through teachers. I'm taught every week. Every week I take the opportunity to sit at the, sit at the feet of men like John Owen and John Gill and Charles Spurgeon and Chrysostom and the Apostle Paul. I even know some who are alive. How do we find ourselves encouraged when we're weak and we're struggling? The Lord raises up Barnabases. He raises up those, those men and women who are full of encouragement. How do we grow in strength and in holiness? We, we do that as we live and worship and, and serve one another. And so Hebrews 12, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak. Strengthen the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You can imagine that in the time that the letter was written, the church was facing opposition and facing suffering and there were people who were weak and they were struggling. One of the first controversies, in fact, in the early church was when somebody had walked away, when somebody had kind of denied the Lord. 
because of threats to their life or threats to their wife or threats to their children. And then they repented and they came back should the church receive them. And there were those who said, no, no. If, if, if you deny Christ to save your scrawny neck, you're not a Christian. And what the scripture says is, look, you've got people who are weak and they're struggling. Strengthen them. You've got people whose knees are shaking with the burdens that they, that they bear. Strengthen them. Don't make it harder. Make it smoother. Smooth the paths for their feet. So we bring this home. I just remind you that times really have not changed. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are still saving sinners. They're still converting sinners, justifying them, placing them within the body of Christ by adoption. And we still have the encouragements that are given to the readers of this letter. I was struck as Roy was reading in Exodus 5 that deliverance comes at a cost. That the people being delivered are often angry at the conflict and the suffering and the pain that that deliverance can cost. We are still under the command of the Lord to endure in faith, to run the race with endurance. The fullness of his strength is within that command and as you believe him and as you set yourself to run the race with endurance to keep the faith as you lay aside the things that weigh you down as you lay aside the sins that tripped you up as you keep your eyes on jesus who is the architect and designer of your faith the contractor and the completer of your faith you will endure god has promised it god has promised it this past week in, in Romans chapter 14, we came across this wonderful statement. It seems so simple. But the statement is in Romans 14, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And then speaking of Christians, he will stand. Because God is able to make him stand. As you know those who are in the Lord, you can encourage them and strengthen them and trust that the Lord will keep them. Second, faith is still given as a gift. It's still that which was designed by Jesus and given to his people. Don't, don't think that your faith was not prepared for what this world throws at it. If your faith is rooted in the scripture, if it's the faith that Jesus has given you, it's exactly what you need to stand against this world. It's never been easy to stand against the world. It's never been easy to stand against the culture and to stand against the popular tide. Ever. Ever. The Lord knew exactly what sort of faith you would need to take you through every aspect, every circumstance. And that's what he has given you. Endure in it. God the Father still disciplines his children for their holiness and righteousness and maturity. He remains the best father that there has ever been. He continues to use every sort of situation to build us up into the image of Christ. He continues to help us resist sin. He continues to prove his love for us. He continues to 
continues to remind us that he is God and to give him his proper honor. And to count not only on his authority as God, but the intimacy that we have with him as Father. And the church remains a place of mutual support. It wasn't easier back then to be part of the church. It was still hard to be part of the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, As you worship, you're speaking to one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. And you've got to know that there was somebody saying, We should only be singing the psalms. No, it shouldn't be singing the spiritual songs, just the psalms. It's good enough for David. It's psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's, it's really fascinating how often Paul says, put up with each other, tolerate each other. What, what we see as bear, bear with one another, it, it just literally means put up with each other. And it means it's hard. You have to put up with me. I have to put up with you. It's no picnic on either side. But you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And as much as I might irritate you, as much as you might irritate me, I'm here for your good. You're here for my good and my strength. And the people who don't know our Savior, the people who have not been adopted by our Father, would crush that life out of us if they could. And they're trying. Imperfect and flawed as we are, there are no people on the earth like the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not Solomon's temple. Zerubbabel's temple. A temple that's being rebuilt, redesigned, cleaned up, sanctified. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every weight, every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it and the authority of it. We ask that we would be encouraged this morning and strengthened this morning. That as we come to this time of sharing in the Lord's Supper, we would understand that our security is because of what Jesus has done for us. that we are part of each other's lives. As we have been joined to you, we have been joined to one another. (coughs) We thank you for the richness and the authority of your word and look to the, the perfect fruit of it in our lives.